Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. This is the sixth session in the course Nationalism versus Globalism. Today, we will be discussing Jean-Jacques Rousseau's letter to D'Alembert on the theater. Rousseau is often considered a father of thought on the left, but the work we will examine today looks downright reactionary. So if you look at the frontispiece of this book, Rousseau puts his credentials beneath his name, Citizen of Geneva. He does not say philosopher. There is a noble simplicity or quiet grandeur in such a presentation. It asks others to judge you, or him, based on what you show them on your speeches and deeds, rather than asking them to honor you before saying anything by flashing your credentials. In stark contrast to this, Rousseau puts D'Alembert's credentials underneath his name as well. He has them from six different European scientific institutions, from the French Academy, the Royal Academy of Sciences of Paris, the Prussian Academy, the Royal Society of London, the Royal Acad uh, Academy of Literature of Sweden, and the Institute of B uh, Bologna. D'Alembert is a cosmopolitan, as at home in France as he is in Prussia. He was one of the early and influential editors of the Encyclopedia. The Encyclopedia was a gigantic work, um, or set of essays that was an attempt to catalog all of human knowledge. But it was not just a descriptive enterprise. Consider this excerpt from a letter that D'Alembert wrote to Voltaire. Quote, No doubt we have some bad articles in theology and metaphysics, but with theologians as censors, I defy you to make them better. There are other articles, less open to the light, where all is repaired. Time will enable people to distinguish between what we have thought from what we have said, end quote. Um, indeed, Diderot, the greatest editor of the encyclopedia, suggested that in some of the articles that conform to what Christian censors want, they have cross-references, telling the reader to go to another article that will undermine the arguments from the previous article. In other words, the encyclopedia was explicitly designed to secularize the world and make its readers uh, rational in at least a minimal way. So this points to, as we saw in an earlier session, uh, what Nietzsche had argued about, that there is a greater homogenization that has started to transpire um, in Europe even as early as the 1750s. Not a complete homogenization by any means, but the beginning of a fading away of differences that is caused at once by Christianity, a growing awareness of history or how many ways that have existed that precede one's own, or you could say historical consciousness, commerce, and we see with D'Alembert a new philosophical emphasis on mankind or humanity as a whole. So let's look at Rousseau's intention in writing this book uh, as he presents it. So speaking of the Enlightenment, Rousseau is roused into action because D'Alembert is an Enlightenment imperialist. Uh, when D'Alembert writes his encyclopedia article on Geneva, he does not merely set out to describe Geneva as it is, but he sets forth recommendations for how it should be. So here are three of the major recommendations that I saw when I read uh, D'Alembert. Number one, he recommends that torture be eliminated. Um, now, I personally have you know, no interest in torturing people. Um, so I'm sympathetic to this, but on the other hand, you might say that to eliminate torture is to presuppose a new kind of respect for enemies that may put them before your friends. Uh, the second recommendation, 
He recommends that an inscription in the town hall that calls the Pope the Antichrist be removed because it is anachronistic. It is an anachronistic symbol from a barbaric age. According to D'Alembert, Geneva is philosophic, and so it should not utilize vulgar religious language. The third recommendation he makes, and this is the biggest one, um, he recommends that Geneva come into possession of a public theater. As Rousseau points out, this particular recommendation makes up one-eighth of D'Alembert's article on Geneva. As far as Rousseau is concerned, this would be like writing an encyclopedia article about some uh, rural town in Montana recommending uh, for one-eighth of the article that they add a strip club or something like that. That's, I think, in a way what Rousseau, by the end of this, wants you to kind of think. So part of Rousseau's task in the letter is to show that adding a theater is not an innocuous or minor suggestion. Today, if you ask most people uh, if we uh, should be permitted to, or if the United States should have ever allowed theaters to be built, they would either shrug, they wouldn't care, or they would think that you are insane. But Rousseau is thinking hard about the purpose of each institution within a city with a view to assessing whether or not it contributes to the citizens becoming better. In this way, he raises the question of what the best regime is and how the particular city of Geneva can become or stay good based on its own peculiar character, people, needs, and circumstances. Part of what he wants to do is show how complex political life is and what kind of unintended consequences can flow from a seemingly small innovation. Rousseau scolds D'Alembert for offering such a dangerous and seductive picture of the theater that will undoubtedly be attractive to the young, who will be delighted to have an authority like the encyclopedia exhorting them to take on this exciting task. Rousseau puts himself on the side of the city, hoping to thwart D'Alembert's attempts to corrupt the youth of Geneva. Now, as much as Rousseau presents himself as a stiff and stodgy moralist in the letter, he still quietly admits but he approaches his grave task with a great degree of playfulness. At the outset of his letter, he admits that most of his previous writings were written esoterically. They don't say everything, but they push thoughtful readers to make Rousseau's thought their own by thinking through the indications and hints that he provides. He insists that in this work, he will actually explain himself. He will say fewer things with more words. He will write not for the few, but for the many. This helps explain his harsh, moralizing tone. Um, but at the same time, uh, saying up front, uh, I used to write esoterically, but not this time, is already a kind of playfulness. Um, and, and since he uh, looks at D'Alembert's article and he divides it up into sections, saying, you know, he one-eighth of this article was devoted to saying Geneva needs a theater, it wouldn't be surprising if Rousseau himself writes in a somewhat similar way, um, or if the work is not entirely straightforward, and I'll try to point out to you a couple times where this kind of thing happens. Um, now, the second indication of Rousseau's playfulness that he says near the beginning of the work, he says that truth and justice are the first duties of man, a solemn claim. Rousseau fulfills his duties by correcting D'Alembert's falsehoods. But Rousseau talks about becoming bored while he was writing. And so he added a large number of digressions into the work in order to alleviate his boredom. In other words, Rousseau selfishly makes his book more fun for himself, and he even claims that he anticipates readers becoming bored with his digressions. But wouldn't this blunt the discharging of his solemn duty to help others appreciate the dangerousness of uh, D'Alembert's suggestion? Uh, 
In this way, Rousseau indicates that his self-interest moves him, meaning that we will have to take his stiff moralism with a grain of salt as we proceed. Now, before Rousseau takes up the task of attacking D'Alembert's suggestion about the theater, he approaches D'Alembert's Enlightenment-style praise of the priests of Geneva. D'Alembert asserts that the priests adhere to the doctrine of Socinianism, which is, quote, rejecting all those things which are called mysteries, and imagining that the first principle of a true religion is to propose nothing to believe that offends reason, end quote. In other words, this doctrine insists that God does not have to reveal himself or any commandments to man. Revelation is superfluous, and no mysteries or mysterious commands should be heeded. Rousseau thinks that this account of the Genevan priests is not true, or, even if true, is not good to say. Rousseau fears that attributing this doctrine to the priests and praising it will put a target on their backs that will be aimed at them by those who still take religious doctrine seriously. That is, Rousseau is telling D'Alembert that the Enlightenment project to end the kingdom of darkness or to kill God or uh, eliminate the conditions that necessitate esoteric writing is not quite as far along as D'Alembert insists, and that caution in writing about such things should still be taken. So, yeah, Rousseau takes up this religious question first, and then he moves to the theater. So, um, Rousseau thinks that D'Alembert has described the priest as too rational, and that this is not wise of D'Alembert to say. So then Rousseau moves to discussing the theater. So D'Alembert insists in his essay on Geneva for the encyclopedia that a theater will improve Geneva. Rousseau brings out the novelty of this proposal. He says that he knows of no philosopher before this point who ever encouraged a free people in a small city to burden themselves with a public theater. Rousseau lets on that it usually uh, that is, it, it, excuse me, it is usually men of God who moralize about the theater, but Rousseau insists that there are merely human reasons that would suffice to be skeptical of a theater. One key argument is that the theater is powerfully conditioned by its need for applause from the audience. Its principal object is to please or amuse. In this way, the theater cannot be used to change manners or morals. It can only follow or embellish moral sentiments that are already latent or embedded in its viewers. Um, and, the, and the biggest example that Rousseau gives of this is Moliere, uh, the French playwright Moliere. So uh, Rousseau reserves praise of the highest kind for the French playwright Moliere. He says that Moliere emancipated himself from the errors of the models of his age. His mind is free. He is not moved by the opinions of his time like other men. Nevertheless, even a man of this very high and rare caliber found himself compelled by Rousseau's account to adjust his great play, The Misanthrope, so that it would generate more laughter. The play features a man named Alceste, who is uncompromising in his honesty. Rousseau believes that Moliere fully comprehends this psychological type of man, and that he would have been able to present such a man as he is on the stage. But that he intentionally distorted such a man's virtue in order to secure applause from the audience. Rousseau says on three different occasions that Moliere was forced to distort Alceste's character. Now, Rousseau says that Moliere perceives the constraints that are placed on his art form. If he wants to continue his way of life, 
He has to bow to these constraints in order to persist in his activity. A lesser man is corrupted by these constraints. But not even a great man like Moliere is able to overcome the restraints enough to educate the audience towards virtue and amuse them at the same time. To educate them towards virtue would be to lose them. To keep them means to amuse them. As Rousseau points out, before there were dramas, were there not virtuous men? Were not virtuous men loved? And were not the vicious hated? So this, this takes us to a new kind of problem. So not only is the theater conditioned by the need to secure applause to keep its audience, um, and in that way has a great deal or a great difficulty in educating uh, its viewers, um, but also it might make us sympathetic um, to the vicious. Um, so uh, think about an audience, or think about you talking to somebody else about somebody who is wicked. If you had just told somebody about a character's vice, or told somebody about somebody's vice, like for instance, uh, the character Medea. Um, there's a lot to say about Medea, but we could say this, she kills her children. So if somebody described to you a mother killing her children, you would think that's a very bad person. But if you watch um, any of the plays named after Medea, um, it's much more likely that you would start to sympathize with her, that you would soften your stance and come to see why she did what she did. And that doesn't mean that you will suddenly go out and do that kind of thing, but you'll be much more forgiving uh, to those who do. So uh, we could say that Rousseau thinks that in a healthy city, um, a theater is not going to be doing any good, um, that there are too many constraints upon it. So it doesn't do anything good, and he raises the question, could it do something bad? He does a lot to bring out the unintended consequences of a theater. Um, and I think here we'll start to see in a little bit a couple of the, maybe what you could call uh, esoteric dimensions of Rousseau's argument. So throughout the letter, Rousseau cleaves to the notion that whether or not a theater is good for a community depends on the particular circumstances. Now, he depicts a beautified mountain town that he visited in his youth and which um, most certainly should not host a theater. He sort of thinks of the worst possible place to put a theater. The noble simplicity and productivity of this mountain town is harshly contrasted with the weakness and dissoluteness of modern and enlightened Paris. Presumably, the character of Geneva is somewhere in between these two poles, and Rousseau wants to help it stay as close as it can to the mountain town. For as Rousseau suggests, it seems very hard to go back after the Pandora's box of enlightenment has been opened. Once one is accustomed to the charms of enlightenment, one often finds oneself unable to do without them, to return uh, to what it was like before. Now, D'Alembert, on the other hand, manifestly hopes to make Geneva more like Paris. But here is something interesting. D'Alembert hopes that Geneva can improve upon Paris. That is to say, D'Alembert freely admits, even in his own article, that actors in almost all places are indeed dissolute, and to put it politely, are not very good citizens. Uh, this is true today as well. D'Alembert thus places some hopes in the sternness of Geneva's laws. He hopes that they will provide the kind of guardrails that will reform the actors, or that the laws will moderate the vices of the actors. In this way, D'Alembert quietly concedes that he admires the remaining vestiges of the pre-liberal or pre-enlightenment moral dispensation. Um, he sees that he can make use of the illiberal spine of Genevan law to help ameliorate the 
the decadent pressures that are unleashed by the Enlightenment attack on divine law. In this way, D'Alembert wants the Enlightenment to be able to harness, in parasitic fashion, the sterner ways of the past, while simultaneously enjoying the pleasures of the theater. Part of what Rousseau wants D'Alembert to see, and for us to see, is that without Geneva jealously guarding its older ways against innovations, and against the bow relaxing, or the, the, against the bow relaxing effects of the Enlightenment, things will tend towards leveling, loss of distinctness, and drabness. The people, overcome by the newly discovered widespread incontinence that flows from inevitably relaxed moral standards that Rousseau thinks will follow from a theater uh, becoming part of Geneva, will be unable to put the Enlightenment back in the box. So, Let's return to Rousseau's mountain town. Rousseau presents us with an idealized town, perhaps unique on earth, as he says. He presents this town in a manner that is designed to appeal to the enlightenment prejudices of his readers. He points out that the man of a small town you find, quote, uh, more original spirits, more inventive industry, more really new things, because the people are less imitative. Having few models, each draws more from himself and puts more of his own into everything he does. Because the human mind, less spread out, less drowned in vulgar opinions, elaborates itself and ferments better in tranquil solitude, because in seeing less, he imagines more. Finally, because less pressed for time, there's more leisure to extend and digest one's ideas. So, um, I think this, this passage seems modulated to affect the young Genevans in particular, the young Genevans who will be tempted by the idea of the theater. They feel that they must be ridiculous for living in stern Geneva with its call to duty and self-restraint. They want to enjoy the lascivious goods of their Parisian neighbors. So, Rousseau tries to show them that most of what they want is less likely to be found in Paris and somehow, paradoxically, more likely to be found in Geneva or in smaller towns. In the city, you will become a small-souled conformist, and the already powerful effects of vanity will be amplified. The young want to think bold thoughts. They want to become more fully themselves. They think that will happen in the city. But, Rousseau seems to indicate, that in the city, they will be inundated with manifold opinions that are not their own. They won't have the leisure needed to digest long, powerful thoughts. They'll always be flitting between the fashionable opinions. They wish the young want to be authentic, which is to say unmoved by external forces or thoughts. And yet, in the city, they will find themselves enslaved to the thoughts of others as they jockey for status. At any rate, Rousseau describes this idyllic town where the people have found the proper measure of the tranquility of retreat and the sweetness of society. The people are tolerably well-educated. They are self-sufficient in building their own tools in each enterprise, and they produce elegant works and instruments that uh, that the envy or sorry that are even envied by those who are in Paris. You see Rousseau here playing on the vanity of the young. You can be better than the fancy people of Paris who depend on and admire things produced in this town. The people drive boredom away through the creation of these tools and through singing hymns in the evening. In the light of these peculiar circumstances, Rousseau asks, what would the effect be of introducing a public theater into such a town? 
Rousseau limits himself to sketching the likely economic results of such a venture, though he shows as well that the economic effects cannot be fully uncoupled from the moral and political effects. So as I go through this list of five disadvantages that Rousseau thinks will follow um, from adding a theater, I'll try to bring out some of the potential moral or political effects that those economic effects would also have. So the first disadvantage, if there was a theater added to this mountain time, it takes time to go to the theater. Fewer evenings will be devoted to producing elegant works. The first disadvantage then, as Rousseau says, is a slackening of work. The second, it costs money to attend the theater, and work clothes won't do for going to the theater, of course. One's Sunday best, as Rousseau puts it, will have to be trotted out more regularly. So the economic effect of um, having to wear your Sunday clothes on a more regular basis will be that they're worn more often and therefore wear out more quickly. You'll have to buy more clothes. But more importantly, and Rousseau is too polite to spell this out, um, one's Sunday clothes are supposed to be worn on Sunday. They're supposed to be worn to show God respect. Now they will be worn to impress others. Um, but at any rate, Rousseau leaves it at saying that uh, this second disadvantage will be increased expense for the citizens of the mountain town. Now three, um, fewer instruments and works will be produced, and so the town will have less to trade with others. The fourth effect of the theater being added will be that roads will have to be made and plowed in the winter so that the plays can be attended. And Rousseau points out, God forbid that the town should put up lanterns so that those attending can find their way home. Lanterns, Rousseau again doesn't spell this out, but I think once he so emphatically turns against lanterns, we have to try to think about why those might be bad. So this is a little bit speculative, but it could be the case that Rousseau thinks that there's a kind of falling out of rhythm with the natural light and darkness that you go to bed after it gets dark, you wake up as soon as it gets light, that lanterns point to a kind of um, artificial nightlife that might not be possible without them. And I wonder, uh, I don't know, could it also point towards a kind of effeminization of the town, that there's a way in which lanterns in particular would make things safer, especially for those who are less physically powerful. And, and one of Rousseau's concerns is that in the Enlightenment, men will become more effeminate. They'll be drawn more towards private matters. They're constantly drawn away from the duties and demands of citizenship. They're much more concerned with love um, or with being gallant or something like that. Um, I don't know. So maybe he thinks that lanterns will encourage uh, this sort of carousing, um, especially for those who are less physically powerful. Um, but at any rate, Rousseau calls this disadvantage um, the problem of taxation. If there's going to be lanterns and roads and plowing, uh, somebody will have to pay for it. It will be the citizens who will have to pay for it. And fifth, the fifth disadvantage um, is that vanity will find a new lease on life with the theater added to the mountain town. When the magistrate's wife goes to a play, she needs to make sure that she really looks like the, <clears throat> like the magistrate's wife. She must appear as the highest status female and not like a school teacher. But all the school teachers will undoubtedly try their best to look like the magistrate's wife, and on it goes. Hence, Rousseau calls the fifth disadvantage the introduction of luxury. Okay, so that's what the effects would be on a small town. Now Rousseau starts to think more in particular about what introducing a theater in Geneva might, might do. 
Um, so he talks about these groups called circles. Um, these are gatherings of men, groups that have dinner together or go hunting, um, uh, read books together, study things, uh, things along these lines. Now, at their best, here is how Rousseau describes what's possible for these groups of men. Um, quote, they, are, <clears throat> they still preserve some image of ancient morals among us. By themselves, the men exempted from having to lower ideas to the range of women and to clothe reason and gallantry can devote themselves to grave and serious discourse without fear of ridicule. They dare to speak of country and virtue without passing for windbags. They even dare to be themselves without being enslaved to the maxims of a magpie. If the turn of conversation becomes less polished, reasons take on more weight. They are not... They are not satisfied by jokes or compliments. Each feeling attacked by all the forces of his adversary is obliged to use all his own to defend himself. It is thus that the mind gains precision and vigor. End quote. There's an enormous amount to say about this passage, and we can't touch on all of it. But to begin with, it's important to note that Rousseau says that the circles help preserve an image of ancient morals. An image is at least one step removed from the thing itself. So even here, Rousseau doesn't really seem to think that there can be a full return to ancient virtue. Rather, decadence can be held off for longer should Geneva avoid the theater. Um, men who speak only among men feel like they can really go for it when they speak. Jokes won't cut it. And of course, men tell jokes, but in these grave conversations, they won't suddenly make a joke when it gets uncomfortable like they might if there was a woman um, in the conversation. Um, and they have to defend their position with their lives, so to speak, if they want to hold on to their argument. We all know that rooms change their character when there's mixed company. When there are men and women in a room, romantic eros suddenly enters the equation. It affects our motivation, potentially. And while it will affect some men more than others, this new motivation may distort the quest for truth. When there's eros in the room, and not just philos, or friendly love, things change. We start to wonder how we look through the woman's eyes, and this can condition what we say. Gallantry and flattery will, will threaten to replace serious and weighty attempts to articulate the truth. Now, Rousseau knows that these groups can be held in disrepute, um, and that some regimes like to get rid of groups like this. And of regimes that do this, he says, quote, it is only the fiercest despotism which is alarmed at the sight of seven or eight men assembled ever fearing that their conversation turns on their miseries. This is why today fraternities and men's groups of all kinds are constantly under attack. Harvard University sought to ban single-sex organizations starting in 2016, but they relented in 2020 because of threatened lawsuits. Now, I'm not uh, even a particularly big fan of frats. Uh, now, the first time I wrote anonymously was an undergraduate, and it was on a campus forum attacking some of the frats for being dissolute and untethered from any serious goals. Really, I was just angry that they were allowed in the library when I was there. Uh, and so I had to uh, go on the attack. But uh, in principle, it seems to me that any group should be allowed to meet and exclude others who aren't part of that group. The Italian American League shouldn't have to include Chinese and the Black Panthers shouldn't have to include the Irish. Um, now, as nobly as Rousseau presents the circles and he tries to paint them in the best possible light that he can, 
he does quietly admit that they don't always live up to high standards. In his final word on them, he says, quote, Before thinking of destroying an established practice, those that will be introduced in its place ought to have been carefully weighed. Whoever can propose one that is feasible and from which no abuse can result, let him propose it. And after that, the circles can be abolished, well and good. Meanwhile, let us, if need be, permit men to spend the night drinking, who, without that, might spend it doing worse. Um, so, yeah, uh, this is also can be a problem. You know, if you've been in a, a men's reading group, um, sometimes the drinking will happen earlier and earlier, you know, as the meetings uh, go on. But uh, so anyway, you can you can see what he's saying. Um, and it, it's it's a brilliant passage. The first line of it establishes what we might take as a kind of encapsulation of Rousseau's entire point in the essay. Don't just add institutions because they work well elsewhere. Carefully consider who your people are and who you want them to be. And just because Norway does something well doesn't mean they can be easily implemented in the United States. A country is entirely different, has entirely different circumstances. It doesn't mean that we can't learn from other countries only that we should be careful in what we add to our own. After Rousseau establishes this principle, he brings out that the men's circles, while they might have had noble beginnings, or while the men might have said high-minded things to their wives before they left for the evening, they often degenerate into drinking or carousing. Rousseau doesn't see drinking groups of men um, as the worst thing for a city. He can imagine much worse. Indeed, he thinks that the theater will point towards co-ed groups doing such things, and that men will subordinate almost all other goals to chasing women. Rousseau mentions that love, in a way, becomes the dominating feature of almost all plays. This was not the case in ancient times. As citizens, or, sorry, as uh, as citizenship loses many of its um, alluring qualities in modernity, and you can see Constant's essay on ancient and modern liberty that Fokin and I talked about um, in a different course to really get at what's going on there, as these public capacities lose their luster, or as citizens are increasingly able to exercise less power, then these private matters, such as love, start to enter the forefront of our lives. And it becomes elevated. It's, love seems to be, you could say, the most elevating thing available to human beings in their private lives. But Rousseau worries that women will come to dominate if or to the extent that men completely retreat into the private sphere, that women will have the advantage there and that men will become more effeminate, that they won't, as Rousseau literally says, they will spend less time in the open air, in the sun. Um, and that it's not going to be good for the women either. Um, as Rousseau says, quote, um, in these new enlightened conditions, women are flattered without being loved. They're served without being honored. They're surrounded by agreeable persons but they no longer have lovers. And the worst is that of the former, without having the sentiments of the latter, usurp nonetheless all the rights. The society of the two sexes, having become too usual and too easy, has produced these two effects. And it is thus that the general spirit of gallantry stifles both genius and love. So this is, I guess you could say, Rousseau has brought out as forcefully as he can that uh, the theater will have enlightening effects on Geneva, and that as far as Rousseau is concerned, these effects are very, very bad. So Rousseau then decides to show us what we could call uh, a more responsible proposal if you wanted to improve life in Geneva. He talks about um, there being 
more awards given. He says, why should we not found on the model of the military prizes? Other prizes for gymnastics, wrestling, running, discus, and various bodily exercises. Why should we not animate our boatmen by contests on the lake? And then Rousseau uh, says, okay, so maybe young men and women already seeing what's going on in Paris, maybe they have a taste uh, for getting together more often than men and women did in the past or to hang out with each other in this more familiar kind of way. Rousseau suggests a responsible way forward. Um, so he talks about dances. And yeah, the, these last three sort of proposals that he speaks about are three things um, all have to do with dancing. He says that for young uh, marriageable persons, there should be uh, balls, uh, formal, more or less somewhat formal balls where they can dance at. And he says, I wish that a magistrate named by the council would not think it beneath him to preside at these balls. So that would provide a kind of elevation when you have the most weighty and serious of the citizens present at the ball. And Rousseau also says that I wish that the fathers and mothers would attend and watch over their children as witnesses of their grace and their address, of the applause that they may have merited, and thus to enjoy the sweetest entertainment that can move a paternal heart. I wish that in general all married women be admitted amongst the number of the spectators and judges without being permitted to profane conjugal dignity by dancing themselves. For to what decent purpose could they thus show themselves off in public? I wish that in the hall there be formed a comfortable and honorable section reserved for the old people of both sexes, who, having already given citizens to the country, would now see their grandchildren prepare themselves to become citizens. I wish that no one enter or leave without saluting this box, and that all the young couples come before, beginning, and after having finished their dance, and make a deep bow there in order to accustom them early to respect old age. So Rousseau thinks that this might be a sort of fun way for men and women to get together in a way that will uh, uh, not produce any indecent interactions. Um now, Rousseau also talks about, as a young man, something that he saw. He said that he saw a dance of men cheered by a long meal. Um, and he says that that would seem to present nothing very interesting. However, the harmony of five or six hundred men in uniform, holding one another by the hand and forming a long ribbon <clears throat> wound around, serpent-like, in cadence and without confusion, with countless turns and returns, countless sorts of figured evolution. The excellence of the tunes which animated them and the sound of the drums, the glare of the torches, a certain military pomp in the midst of pleasure. All this created a very lively sensation that could not be experienced coldly. So, and yeah, isn't there something kind of, I don't know, charming or, or something that really grabs you when you see 600 people able to do something in unison together, as opposed to just being a big blobby mass of human beings or a mob? Um, there's something pretty impressive about that level of distinction and organization. So Rousseau suggests, you know, seeing sites like that is good for people. And he ends the book talking about a Spartan dance. He says, that of the old began first, singing the following couplets. This is what the old men say. We were once young, valiant, and hardy. There followed that of the men who sang in their turns. These be the regular adult men. They beat their arms in cadence. We are so now ready for all comers. So the men present themselves as ready to defend their town, their own way, that they are ready to do what their fathers had done. And then came the children who answered them singing with all their force. And we will soon be so. We who will surpass you all. 
Imagine the confidence of a people who can say things like this. Um, I long for a time in which we in the United States can be so confident that we could say such things again. Okay, well, that's all for Rousseau. I'd welcome any questions or criticisms. Um, There's a lot of things to talk about, and I hope to talk to some of you in the audio discussion group about this soon. Uh, Brian C. Wilson, out.